an update on the 2022 Vintage Metagame on episode 106 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 106 of So Many Insane Plays, our summer 2022 metagame update. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at, at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We don't have a lot of show-specific updates or announcements uh, for this episode, Steve, but I know that I wanted to mention one thing in particular, and that is the lack of news about Eternal Weekend for this year. Yes, disappointing lack of news. Yeah. You and I have talked before about how we are excited to see the future, but also trepidatious about the conducting large-scale gatherings for Magic tournaments. It's pretty clear that the world is moving forward with holding large-scale con-type events for magic and other things, and that there's a fair bit of divisiveness across uh, health and safety standards for those kind of things. I have no inside information about what Nick or uh, Card Titan are coping with, but you have to believe that they are addressing issues like that and probably, I hope, learning from their peers that are also conducting large events. What do you think? I hope so. I mean, I'd be speculating to... (laughs) to draw some inference from a lack of information about how our community-related tournament organizers are handling the situation, but I would hope that they are seriously thinking about and making plans for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On a related note, we just got information in the last few days about Magic 30. That is the 30th anniversary large-scale event that Wizards themselves are putting on, and it's not too far from you, so... What are your thoughts on the event, and are you thinking about going? Well, let's start with the name. Uh-huh. It, it strikes me as strange that they are billing an event as Magic 30, meaning sort of the 30th anniversary of Magic, when it's only the 29th anniversary. <laughs> so, You're not the first person I've heard uh, uh, observe that, and I'm with you. I it, don't I mean, understand, but here we are. I mean, the 15th anniversary was in 2008. We were there. We were at U.S. Nationals, where yep. they had the... 2008 Vintage Championship, which was, Mm -hmm. they had the birthday cake, Richard Garfield was there, that's where I got to talk to him. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was a great time. Uh, The 30th, it seems to me, should be in 2023, so a year Mm -hmm. from now. That said, I think they're trying to market this as sort of like a year-long celebration. It's just odd. Mm -hmm. Now, let's caveat and bracket that. That's the caveat, (laughs) let's bracket that. Um, This event looks really interesting. So, the details are it's in Las Vegas from October 28th to October 30th at the Expo at World Market in Las Vegas. I don't know much about World Market or the Expo. I don't know whether this is part of a larger thing. Do you know, Kevin, whether this is part of a larger thing? Or is it just So far as I know, it is not. Okay. Yeah. Is this something like Gen Con or the Essenspiel in Germany? You know, there's like huge essentially gaming conventions where you draw or cultural conventions where you draw lots of different people and diverse people and it's part of that or is it something on its own i guess i could look it up but (laughs) well so far as i know it it is a standalone event okay well 
they just released sort of details, and there's still a lot of details to be had. Um, of interest to our audience is there are going to be vintage tournaments. It looks like there's both old school and vintage tournaments. I think that they are at 8 p.m. I'd have to, maybe Kevin, you can pull up and, why don't you pull up the tournament information and I'll tell our audience about the pack entry packages. Yeah, so, I will do that. So the entry packages have just recently been announced and they go on sale on August 11th, which will be probably uh, before um, folks hear this show. But essentially the packages are, they've named them after Moxon, Kevin. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I noticed the single that. day package is the Emerald package. And what does that tell you about how they view Mox Emerald? <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also a kid's version of it. But essentially the Emerald package is you get a one-day badge, you get an event promo card called the Arcane Signet, which is foil-etched, you get a Richard Garfield PhD promo card, a Mystery Booster, and a Dominaria United Collector Booster. And there's a kid version of it, which is a little bit simpler. Then there's a weekend package, which is the Sapphire package, and it's uh, about two and a half times as much money to get in. Mm-hmm. You get a weekend badge, the event promo card, the Richard Garfield promo, a mystery booster, two Dominaria United Collector boosters, and then a Magic 30 playmat. And then there's a kid's version of Sapphire. So I guess it's not strictly from worst to best mocks because Sapphire is the next is the second tier. <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> there's the jet package, which is a virtual ticket. I don't know exactly what that means, except that you get an MTG Arena event entry token, a Magic Online event entry token, a virtual Q&A with Richard Garfield, a separate virtual Q&A with Mark Rosewater, an arena avatar, and then access to Magic 30 merchandise. Then there is Pearl VIP. There's no Pearl non-VIP. It's just Pearl VIP. So I guess you could just call it Pearl for shorthand if you wanted. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You get a weekend badge, four event promos, including the Arcane Signet, and the Richard Garfield promo, two Mystery Boosters, two Modern Horizon, two Boasters, three Dominaria United Collector Boosters, the Magic 30 playmat, deck box and sleeves, an Unfinity VIP event with Mark Rosewater on Friday. I don't know exactly what that is, but Unfinity, that sounds interesting. <laughs> a Magic 30 pin, 10% off all event merchandise, and then a drawstring backpack. So that's the Pearl. And then the Ruby is called Ruby VIT, VIP Commander, which is, is the exact same price as the Pearl, by the way, which is $350. You get a weekend badge and lanyard, Two event promos, including the Signet, the car, or I guess the Signet, maybe you get two copies of it. The Richard Garfield promo. You get two commander promos. It says Soul Ring traditional foil. So, Soul Ring. Three Commander Legends draft boosters, two Modern Horizons, two draft boosters, a commander playmat, exclusive commander playmat, exclusive deck box and sleeves, command zone access, Magic 30 pin, 10% off, and then one commander on demand event entry, I assume. And then the final ticket is the Black Lotus VIP, which Naturally. is $700, which is the weekend badge and lanyard, the four event promos, the Richard Garfield, the two mystery boosters, the three Dominaria collector boosters, the three Commander Legend boosters, the two Modern Horizon 2 draft boosters, four Commander promo cards. It just says Soul Ring. So is it four Soul Rings or just like four including Soul Ring? It's unclear. <laughs> unclear. Exclusive Commander playmat. Magic 30 playmat, deck box and sleeves, event secret layer, Lil Jiri. I don't know what that is, Lil Jiri. Mm-hmm. Um, Buck 2 Planeswalker backpack, one commander on-demand event, the Unfinity event with Mark Rosewater, command zone access all weekend, complimentary entry to one Crimson Anniversary Night Party. 
access mm-hmm. to the VIP lounge, and then 10% off exclusive merchandise. So it's b- basically sounds like the, the Black Lotus VIP is essentially the same. It's a, a kind of a combination of the pearl and the ruby, except you get then the un, you get the um, crimson anniversary entry and the VIP lounge is essentially the difference and a little bit more on top. But that's that seems to me to be the big difference. So I guess if you are, let's just say you're a vintage player. Well, Kevin, tell me what, what you found in terms of events. The, there's no timing spe- specified for several of the events at this point. They only have the big ticket items like Worlds, like the Magic 30 Championship, as they're calling the biggest event, and a few other things. The rest of the things don't have specific timing for them. But it does say Vintage. It does there. say Vintage, and it does say Legacy. And, and of school. note, yeah, it says that um, if you finish 3-0 in the Legacy event, you'll receive a booster of Italian Legends, which is <laughs> wow. a, a throwback to you know Vintage Gen Champs for, yeah. Yeah, and Gen Con from, from years ago. It said the vintage event will award specific prize tickets that can be used on the prize wall um, and memorabilia from the beginning of Magic till now. Uh, so it's it's kind of unfortunate that the vintage event has what I would call the weakest of prizes, which is just <laughs> tickets for the prize wall. But hopefully there's something fun there from a memorabilia standpoint, um, given that it's a 30th anniversary celebration. Well, so I guess I'd like to make a recommendation to our audience. If you're a vintage player and or an old school player, and if you want to go... It seems to me logical to get a weekend pass, right, rather than a day pass. I mean, if you're going to take the trouble to go to Las Vegas, you know, you probably want to go at least two of the days, right? It's a, it's. I would say yes. That has everything to do with how distant it is for you. Assuming you're flying in, then yes, I can't imagine yes. flying in for a single day. I mean, it's a three-day event. It's 28th, 29th, and 30th. Yeah, so, and plus there's, yes. there's the World Championships going on. There's multiple panels across yes. in different days with different topics, and so... I'm with you. I would try to make use of all of the surrounding activities that are there. So if you were to buy the Emerald package three times, you'd spend $180, <laughs> which which is more expensive than the Sapphire package, which gets you the week. So we can, if you're going for vintage or old school, I think you can rule out the Emerald package and go, the Sapphire package would be your starting point. The only reason I would get the Pearl over the, the, the Pearl is $350. I'm 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 assuming that between the Pearl and the VIP Commander, vintage players would probably be more interested in the Pearl because you get you get access to the um Unfinity event with Mark Rosewater, um, which the Pearl offers and the Ruby does not. Interesting. So and you get the pin and you get the playmat, and b- both have the playmat and well, let's see. No. <laughs> the the Ruby does not have the playmat, but it does have the pin. You they instead both have the pin. Instead, the ruby comes with the commander playmat. So I assume if you're not a commander player and you're a vintage player and you are debating between the ruby and the pearl, I would probably go with the pearl mm-hmm. because then you get to go to the um, event with Mark Rosewater. That said, it's, go ahead. I'm with you. It seems like a big miss on their part to have aligned the arcane signet foil with the pearl package. What is and, arcane signet foil? What is it? <laughs> well, arcane signet is the commander specific um mana rock it's the felwar uh, stone that makes mana of the color of your commander it uh, has no function outside of commander okay and so, so what should they have put in there the well they should ring? have swapped the soul ring and the arcane signets upon the pearl and the ruby package i believe okay but but you know what it, it's not entirely clear as you said when it says four promos arcane signet it's not entirely clear whether or not you get four copies four. of that or if it's a <laughs> distribution of the three promos or something we'll right. see maybe it's a much ado about nothing so 
So I guess what I'm saying is I would recommend the Sapphire package unless you really want to get the pin and access to the Mark Rosewater event and some of the additional swag, in which case I probably would recommend the Pearl. Mm -hmm. The question then, is it worth it then to pay twice as much for the Black Lotus VIP? Well, I can tell you from Eternal Weekend that I really didn't think the VIP lounge was really like, I mean, I don't know, just didn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, I'm not saying, I'm not making an economic judgment about the relative monetary cost value, but I didn't think it was, you know, necessarily all that special. This is a lot of swag and I'm not really interested. I mean, unless my friends are going to sit around, we're going to sit around and, and draft. I'm not sure I really want all these packs, you know, it's like mystery <laughs> boosters and United Dominaria United collector boosters and commander legend boosters and modern horizons boosters. I mean, that really doesn't mean much to me. So the only reason I would be excited about the black Lotus package is two things. The crimson anniversary night party, which we don't know anything about, or do you, do you know, is there entry access separate to that? Do you know, in other words, mm. is there an entry fee that's been specified to that or any details about that event? Let's see. No, there's no details about that event. I think so we, it's meant to it's be a, a big tease question at this mark. point. Yeah. It's, they're essentially forcing you to decide whether to purchase that or not <laughs> <laughs> without knowing about it. And then secondly, whether you want access to the VIP lounge. That seems to me... And I guess the C- event secret layer, Lil, Lil Jiri, I don't know much about that, but that might be of interest. I don't... I have no yeah. interest in secret layers. I don't know if you do, Kevin. Well, secret layers are a whole conversation unto themselves. It will be an attractive item to some people and it will it appears to be very exclusive. So there's a chance it will simply have a fair amount of secondary market value. It could be right. worth a hundred dollars in a year or three. I don't, I don't know. Right. So, I mean, I guess I would start if I was making a recommendation, I would say that start with the Sapphire package and then consider the Pearl. And if you, if we find out more about these parties or these other things, you could consider the VIP, the Black Lotus VIP, but <laughs> unless you really are into all this swag, it's probably better just going off with the pearl. It's worth noting too that um, there will be enough people on site that have swag they don't care about that you could pay, you could get the sapphire package, for example, and then just kind of skulk around and ask people if they want to sell their pin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Such a thing has happened repeatedly at events like this year over year. So it's certainly an option. Yes. So I am probably going to go. I'm excited to go. Uh, I wish I could tell folks I was definitively going, um, but I just haven't figured out all the logistics yet. If I, you know, so I don't want people to rely on that dragging around copies of the gush book. But <laughs> but if you do happen to have a gush book and I meet you, I'd be happy to sign it. Nice. Put it that way. Kevin, anything else about this event you wanted to name, flag, or underscore? Just that they are catching a lot of flack for various elements of this, and rightly so. Some of it's the cost. Some of it's the way the packages were structured and communicated with respect to commander play. There's some question and answer happening on social media as we speak. Um, They've received some compliments, and I agree that health and safety is, is right up at the top of the list in terms of considerations for the event. And they have, compared to other recent conventions, fairly strict requirements, including... vaccination or recent negative test, as well as face coverings during the event. So I'm glad to see that personally. I know not everyone is, but I'm on the list of people who wants that if I'm going to go to an event like this. Yes. And I think they generally have put together a lot of quality stuff here. I mean, it really depends on what you're into. The panels, the kind of panels that are here, 
they're the kind of things you can't get online. Right. They can't go to a panel like experience online. It's not like they're going to be streaming this thing. I don't think with Mark Rosewater and other things. Yes. So there's some there's some cachet to being at these kind of things and and meeting up with folks who are de- developers, designers, and otherwise influencers in Magic. Um, I think so, that's really important. Yeah. And and you know the whole thing there's mystique around the whole thing given that the World Championships there and they're branding it as a 30th anniversary event and there's just lots of history tie in. So if you're a fan of the history of the game like we tend to be and like our audience I think tends to be. I think there's some ambient value here that doesn't show up. You have to kind of see it between the lines and the the cost of the packages and such. Well, also, you have to consider that, you know, what's the next big anniversary? I mean, 40, I mean, there's no guarantee that any of these people will be alive. I'm, you know, Mm. I'm not saying that they're likely to pass, but, (laughs) but, you know, know, life is strange like that and unexpected um, things can happen. There are original artists that you and I have signatures from who are no longer with us, sadly. Right, and that is going to continue. So let me let me just flag the um, panels since you mentioned them. The the ones that I think are most interesting and relevant. Mm-hmm. So the conversation with Richard Garfield is scheduled for the main stage, which means I don't think it's going to be hard to get seating for that <laughs> on Saturday, <laughs> October 29th from twelve thirty to one thirty p.m. That seems like an awkward time because it seems like tournaments or events would be happening there or abouts. But I would definitely go to that if I could. The second thing, and this might be what I was referring to earlier, is the Unfinity panel mm-hmm. is with Mark Rosewater. It's, <laughs> my God, it's 30 minutes after the Richard Garfield panel. It's from two to three on the main <laughs> stage, and they're going to talk about the history of the unsets. I have partial interest in that, but I think it would be, but but it would be interesting to just do like a Q&A with Mark. That said, there's a separate Mark Rosewater panel from 12 to one on Sunday, mm-hmm. and there's 60 minutes with no script, so that would probably be your better chance to sort of get Q&A with him. Yeah, um, good call. Do you see anything else that, uh, the tournament schedule you mentioned that has name stuff, but there's nothing? There's there's not actually, there. I have saw some discussion on Twitter. It was specifically uh, Matt Sperling and, and Dave Williams talking about how there was lacking a large limited qualifier type event, which is the sort of thing that their level of players like to have at larger GP size events like this. So I would say if you're there to play, pay close attention to what's really on offer because sadly they are spreading themselves fairly thin from an event standpoint. This isn't going to be like Gen Con where there's a draft firing every 15 or 20 minutes. You're not necessarily, you're not guaranteed to get exactly the kind of magic play you want, (laughs) even though there's a long list of things offered. So I'd say be, be aware about that kind of thing. And, and also the Vintage for Vintage tournament on scheduled for Friday, which is three rounds, is $75 for entry. And the Legacy for Legends tournament is $125 for entry. So yeah. it's three rounds, and it's not exactly inexpensive entry. I mean, it's... <laughs> Those are going to be odd tournaments. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, to say the least. But it, yeah. but it looks like the Vintage for Vintage happens all three days. So that they start at noon, which is awkward if you want to see those panels. That Very. I just mentioned. So I suppose, I don't know, you have to make a choice Yeah. on which of those to go. Like maybe you could do Vintage for Vintage on Friday and Sunday and then see the Richard Garfield panel or or whatever. Um, I thought I saw old school tournaments in here, Kevin. Did you see those? No, I wasn't able to locate that. No, I saw no reference to that on the main page. Hold on. Yes, there is. Okay, so old school. The old school event is at 8 p.m. on Friday. It's 93-94 Constructed Rules. 
So oh, there you go. It doesn't okay. say which version of 93. I assume it's the European. It doesn't say, but it's three rounds and it's $30 to entry. So that would be, that's, that looks fun. Nice. Um, and then there's another old school at 9 p.m. on Saturday, October 29th. Same thing. Three rounds, $30 to play. So there you go. So the vintage and, and old school events are, are non-overlapping. That's nice. So you could essentially get six rounds of vintage and old school per day for Friday nice. and Saturday. I, yeah. So, okay. Well, there you go. Magic 30. <laughs> and uh, we haven't listed it so far, but I should call out the fact that they have a quality lineup of artists. It's not very large, but it includes old school favorites like Mark Poole and Mark Tadine. But Love them. Yeah, it also includes other high quality artists that have fantastic cards among them. Ryan Pancoast, Victor Adame Minguez, and Evan Fong. And if you, I mean, I'm guessing some of you love each of those artists. I'm guessing at least one person that doesn't know who each of those artists are. So go look at their cards because every one of those people has done some high quality things in recent years. Nice. So get your uh, Asmar and Amartika Dysonicolda cards signed. One other small, uh, sorry, I need to make an amendment, Kevin. There's this, the Sunday vintage event is only $30. The other two are 75 Interesting. That. Yeah. Yeah. There you well, go. Given that's the, the rundown. Given the amount of cost that's required to commit up front, not only in event participation and badges, but obviously in travel and everything else, um, uh, we encourage our audience to look carefully and thoroughly about what's really on offer because yes. there's a lot. Well, it's also <laughs> just fun to be in Las Vegas. I mean, I haven't been in a long time and I've, I've never been the biggest Vegas fan, but <laughs> it, it after you know three years of pandemic, I think it would be fun to go to Vegas and, yeah. and hang out with friends and and I mean to to each their own. Yeah, I mean I I enjoyed like seeing a Cirque du Soleil every time I'm in Vegas. So put it that way. Well, that's cool. I'm glad you did. All right, shall we move on to discussing the latest in the vintage meta? Yes. So for this show and our one in the many series of ongoing metagame updates that we do here, we are going to take a slightly different tack here and fully leverage the vintage community metagame data for the first time. And I say for the first time because we have tracked our own data for this show for the last several years, and it just turns out that there's kind of no reason to replicate the effort done by the community. And so I just want to start by... Once again, thanking yes. the vintage community, the streamers, the Discord community, and Justin Gennari in particular for all the work that you do to put this out, maintain it, and just produce a quality result here. It's no small amount of work. So thank right. you. And I have decided just going forward that I'm not going to continue to maintain a separate database. I have it. I have a database of every top eight um, from Magic Online from the inception of Vintage on it through <laughs> December of 2021. But the classification systems have been so refined, the data is so detailed, and the fact that they have both the metagame and the performance data, I think renders my effort not exactly superfluous, but not exactly is essential or necessary. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to flag that going forward. I could revisit that and I could always go back and compile it, but I don't need to put hours and hours into compiling that anymore if <laughs> this source is, is essentially excellent, right? So. Just and another way of saying thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And on a related note, part of what this means is that where in the past, Steve, you and I have been given to discussing purely top eights a lot of the time, and thanks to our own data gathering, we are going to be speaking to metrics that include all participants in most of these events. And that's part of what makes this data set and this effort on the part of the community so valuable is that it is far more comprehensive. Yes. There will be a few metrics that we discuss specific to top eights, but that won't be the standard. So we'll try to distinguish that when we get to it. And what I also like is how they have put so much attention into getting the archetype. Look, (laughs) the hardest part of this, yes, there is the grind and the manual (laughs) labor of actually compiling and calculating and aggregating data. But the the theoretical part, the taxonomical part of actually creating and maintaining a consistent classification system is no small Mm -hmm. thing. And they have done, I think, a lot of hard conceptual work thinking through what the taxonomy should be and then updating and revising it and then going back and reclassifying past data to create consistent and comparable data sets. So Mm -hmm. that's incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. So, So Kevin, why don't you explain to our listeners what date range we're going to be looking at here. We're primarily going to be talking about year-to-date 2022. So we're recording this in early August. We won't be focusing at all on the first events from the first week in August. So we're going through January 1st through July 31st of 2022. Almost, it's a little more than a half a year. It's seven-twelfths of a year. So That's right. Um, And one of the things I want to reiterate too, Steve, is something you alluded to a second ago, the taxonomy of the archetypes and sub-archetypes. I'm not going to list them all, but suffice it to say, when we're going to try to be clear when we talk about an archetype, which in this community data is broken into eight larger groupings, shops, bazaar, blue control, combo, death right shaman or DRS, aggro, oath, and blue tinker. Those yes. eight things plus an other category, which is a minuscule amount. Can, can I pause you for a second and just say that this is not necessarily the classification system I would use, but it's useful for analytic purposes because it's consistent, mm-hmm. right? So it, in some ways, it doesn't matter what the classification system is, so long as you have a common framework, a shared framework for analysis. So, you know, in my, in my view, I prefer to have Xerox decks broken out because I... Xerox decks essentially try to minimize the mana base. They don't run maximum blue. I mean, so they don't run maximum artifact acceleration and they have a few lands below the normal blue increment, right? So I prefer to have Xerox as a separate category, but I understand that essentially years of restrictions have sort of taken a hit out of Xerox as a defined separate archetype and sort of blended now more into the vintage metagame. So it's not helpful to distinguish it and i think shops you know i could quibble with that as a meta is the sort of super archetype but it's functionally equivalent to the taxing archetype you know with the small exception of the um ancient tomb decks that don't really exist anymore that used um what were they called kevin that used um the eldrazi yeah the eldrazi white eldrazi yeah white eldrazi so it still exists but it's not very large so again there's ways that you could mix and match these, but I think this is very close in terms of analytical value and insight mm-hmm. to the taxonomy that I had used. So yeah. I just wanted to mention that before you got to the sub-archetypes. Go ahead. Well, and I don't plan to list all the sub-archetypes, but suffice it to say that each one of these categories has three or more sub-archetypes in it, with, with one exception. And 
in general, most of them are not a, there's not one clear winner within the subarchetype. In most cases, there's a duopoly or, or more of sub genres that, and in many cases contribute very strongly to different results. So this is where we could, we could get into a lot of minutia about these uh, taxonomies, but we're not going to. Suffice it to say, whenever it matters, <laughs> the, the relevant difference of a sub subarchetype and its performance, we're going to try to call it out. But we're going to glaze over a lot of those because you have to. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, if I wanted to summarize and give a pithy definition of the narrative of this year, so far, January through July, what I would call it is the rise and fall of Tinker. Yes. Because as a percentage of metagame, and these are holistic numbers here, yes. the first half of, of our data set here, that is the <clears throat> first four months of the year, shows a strong representational dominance by Tinker. Yes. I mean, and some of the higher numbers we've ever range. seen. Yes. Yeah. But the irony is that it has been quenched and it has been quenched by nothing more than metagame adjustment. It's not like we had some big restriction. It's not like we had some big new printing. Nothing has come in and just said, oh, this is the new form. It, it is a, a very healthy and I would argue pure demonstration of metagame adjustment that we're observing this year. And I love it. Well, well, that's a that's an inference that is not provable by this by the charts, the data itself. But but I believe you. Let's <laughs> let's let's break that down into two parts. Let's talk about the dynamic, what happened mm -hmm. to Tinker, and then let's talk about the metagame response. So the the data shows that essentially at the beginning of the year, Blue Tinker was by far sort of the best performing archetype, sorry, the most represented archetype as a percentage of the metagame. Mm -hmm. And it was close to 25% of the metagame. And then it stayed pretty much a quarter of the metagame through March. And then it spiked in April to about a third of the metagame. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to flag for comparative purposes that that's essentially the range that you saw Gifts Ungiven decks, Control Slaver decks, the Tezzeret deck, the sort of historical dominant blue Mana Drain decks, that range is very comparable to the range that we have seen historically. So I could point you to, you know, a year period in the middle aughts where Gifts was about, you know, 22 to 32% of the metagame, right? To where Tezzeret was about 33%, 35 36% of the metagame. In those cases, they led to restriction, but that's not what happened here. What happened here is that by the time you get to May, June, and then July, between April and May, there's a huge fall-off. So it goes from 33% of the metagame to, what is it, about 15% of the metagame, Kevin? And then it has mm -hmm. a, a, so it has a, it falls off a cliff, mm -hmm. and then it has a gradual tapering off from there. Yeah. So that is a very dramatic turn in a month. And then a stabilization. So what do you what specific metagame dynamics do you attribute that to? And can you see in the data a pattern that would explain that? Well, it, it's really interesting. So what we've been talking about so far is representation. Everything you yes. said is accurate. The overall number at its peak, that is the whole metagame representation, was 32%, as you said. Yes. The top eight representation in April was above 40, just a little over wow. 40. I mean, that's a huge number for top eights. Yes. historic levels from things we've covered many Over times before. Overrepresented its metagame presence in top yeah. ends, which means that the win percentage is presumably quite high. <laughs> well, and that's what I was getting at, is that the next thing I looked at when observing these representation numbers was match win percentage. 
And the year has demonstrated one overarching theme, and that is in the early months of the year, the first quarter, there was a giant separation. Top performers above 55% on average, low performers at 50% or worse. In fact, there's an enormous gulf between about 53% and about 48% in, in March, which is really unusual. The thing is, the top performers in terms of match win percentage weren't the same every month. There were, even though Tinker was way overrepresented, the next most represented deck was at 20%, the match win percentages jockeyed back and forth. In January, Bazaars and Tinker had the same match win percentage, 55 and a half. Wow. And then it switched. In, in February, it was Tinker and Combo. We're talking Breach and Doomsday there. 56%. Then there's this consolidation that happens over the course of April, March, April, May. The weirdest thing. So we go from highs and lows extreme to, in March, four decks are within about 1.5% of each other. All the, all the top hitters, Bazaar, Blue Control, Blue Tinker, and Combo, all within a range of 1.5% in the mid-50s. And then it gets even more consolidated as some, some lower performers jump up and bunch into the numbers and everyone's average goes down. Or that is to say, everyone's average regresses toward 50%. Whereas the, in, in April, the highest performing deck was actually Blue Tinker still, but at only 53%. And everyone was bunched between 48 and 53 in Incredibly April and May. Yeah, That's right. Everyone was bunched within a 5% range. Whereas the first three months All of the, the year demonstrated, archetypes. yeah, like a 15% range. So there was this major consolidation in competitiveness in April and May across the major archetypes, which continued into June, but it continued with Blue Tinker not being at top anymore. What got to the top? The two emergent strategies that were jockeying for position and eventually overtook Tinker are Bazaars and Combo. And, and in particular, Doomsday and Hogak. Yes. This is where some sub-archetype things become very interesting. Because whereas at the end of last year, Breach was a dominant combo, and we talked about Breach's overall impact of last year during our year-end show, this year's combo story is more, in, is more tilted towards Doomsday. Doomsday has, has long been considered one of the top decks in the format, but also underrepresented, frequently underrepresented, sometimes because it has a reputation for being hard to play. That's increasingly less true, but be that as it may, I, I continue to believe that Doomsday is underrepresented. That's amazing, but, amazing. But, yeah, but either way, Doomsday's match win percentage just kind of continued to rise uh, over the course of the year. It started very low. Yeah, it started very low at the year at uh, around 46%. Then it spiked up to 56% in February and has been at or near the top every month since. Similarly, uh, Bazaars have followed a similar trajectory, only they started really high in January. They started tied with Tinker at 56 in January, dropped down by about 7, and then they jumped up in, um, in May, sorry, March, and have been of the top two ever since. What I attribute this to is, as I said earlier, metagaming. There are matchup dynamics across these decks that have been simmering throughout the whole year. And obviously, despite how great this data set is, we are dealing with some smallish numbers occasionally in terms of tournament size or sample size. But the bottom line is, is that we have matchup numbers baked into this data set that demonstrate where uh, Tinker is positioned along the, the bizarre spectrum. And it's really interesting because if you get into the Tinker's matchup against the sub-archetypes in bazaars, you start to see some of the, the interesting stuff come through. 
Tinker has an excellent matchup against, um, hold on. Tinker has an excellent matchup against Dredge, 53% for the year. Yes. And has a, a, a close to a good, to yeah, a close to good matchup against Squee too, similarly, 52% for the year. And a horrible matchup against Hogak, 40%. 40% for the year. That that number is it's hard to stress how important that number is because it has a really really narrow confidence interval. That is a very widely played matchup in this metagame for this year and a 40% number with a tight confidence interval is incredibly bad. And that speaks to what I observed up top, which is that going into last year, well going into January of this year, the most common uh bizarre deck was going to be Dredge. Now it was shifting, you know, it always shifts a little bit. But over the course of this year, Hogak has taken over and in no small part due to its incredibly good matchup against Blue Tinker. And that has contributed strongly to the suppression of Why? Tinker as an archetype. Yes, but interesting. So there's these sort of like countervailing forces is what I hear you saying. So Blue mm -hmm. Tinker suppressed Dredge, but then Hogak suppresses Blue Tinker. Mm -hmm. And Doomsday has helped, what, suppress both of them? <laughs> it, Doomsday has, has had a great year. In fact... A couple more months of this and Doomsday will overtake Tinker in terms of the best performing deck of the year. There's another aspect of this too, which I've gleaned from the, the data and a little bit more sampling throughout the last eight months. And that is the construction of Tinker is widely varied. So uh, I say this not as criticism of the data set or of the gathering, but we may be in a position to differentiate between Tinker decks. Now, I don't want to overstate that. We may be in a position to do that. And that's because the, the Tinker decks I'm talking about still share 80% of the same cards, of course. But there are Esper variants that favor re more removal in the form of uh, prismatic ending swords to plowshares. And they favor, you know, the one of Monastery Mentor, which has a certain angle of attack. There are Grixis variants that feature red-based creatures like Ragavan, like Lelia, and and obviously pyroblasts and their removal tends to be a braid now are those decks very different no they are not but they can jockey for position in certain matchups because the grixis versions are afforded the ability to run much more disruptive counter magic the grixis versions have gone up to as many as six one mana counter spells between flusters and pyros in the main whereas esper versions are sometimes as low as two that kind of thing but also interestingly if i had asked you to show me a sample Grixis Tinker list last December, yes. it almost certainly would have had four Ragavans in it. Well, I don't think that's true. I saw a lot that had two or three, <laughs> well, even in, in the winter. <laughs> okay, Honestly. fair enough. Maybe not the four of, but my point is it would have had Ragavan in it and yes. not just one, Absolutely. but that has almost completely dissipated. Ragavan is now the exception, the, the, the normal exception. It's also worth noting that the creature distribution in these lists, the Grixis versus Esper, makes, I think, a big difference in how they play out because these Esper decks are starting to favor Lavinia as maybe a two or three of. And the Grixis lists, depending on where you see them, will have either zero or four hull breachers where the Esper decks tend not to. So there's definitely positional jockeying going on here, which is why I'm confident saying that a lot of the shift here is, is pure metagame activity and interaction and in a very healthy way, in my opinion. So that takes us up to the moment. What what are sort of the top archetypes and what are their... I mean, we have not just... We have lots of data points. We have the overall metagame representation, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we have top eight representation. Number three, we have win percentage. And number four, we actually have win percentage vis-a-vis -vis each other. So we can <laughs> see, right? We mm -hmm. do have that. We have access to that. We have insight into that. Yep. So, Kevin, tell me what, what are the sort of the top... I don't want to... You know, it's 
we're getting you've done an overview where are we now or in the last few months where and we how, are now how are the decks doing yeah. how do they do perform against each other we're in a really interesting pivot point right now in particular the month of july because what have happened has happened is i think we've basically come full circle from an evolution standpoint and gotten back down to more of the interaction of fair decks interacting against unfair decks bizarre is oh, at its loaded. lowest point okay yeah bizarre is at its lowest point in the year metagame or sorry match win percentage down below 50 percent again 47 and a half blue control and tinker have been tempered they're down to the less than 52 51 51 and a half combo's been tempered down to 52 and in july the two top performing archetypes were oath and shops wow for the first and only time of the year so far were those two decks the top performing but that's why i say you can see a migration you can see where the tinker decks at the end of last year and for several months last year were very good at beating up on fair decks tinker has just a very very good matchup against decks like oath against decks like aggro against decks like blue control historically and for the throughout this year it has but if it gets pummeled over and over again by hogak then it gets de- it gets depressed and that's what happened in may and june and july of this year tinker got suppressed from a representation standpoint the decks that had suppressed it in may and june flourished so that's your bazaars and your your combo decks but then in june the decks that flourish against those decks had their day in the sun and so that's where we're at right now we're at a very disrupted moment. I can't expect this metagame configuration to last long because anytime that you know workshops have the best match win percentage in a, in a format, uh, multiple decks reconfigure and or step in like Deathrite Shaman decks, etc., to to tamp that down. So, I think I think that August is going to look very different than June and July, and I think that the there's going to be a shakeup, and you're going to see Deathrite Shaman maybe creep back in because there's so much workshop aggro doing well. And, well, things are just going to run their course. You're going to see some, a continued natural evolution, but it's not going to stay in the state that it is right now because now we're in a very reactive uh, stance. Blue control, by the way, for, as an example, blue control's <laughs> match win percentage throughout the metagame has been the most volatile of this year. <laughs> we're talking 49 down to 42, up to 54. Think about that, 42 to 54 inside wow. of one month. Wow. Back down to back down to 47, 46, and then it Those are tanked. huge oscillations. Then it completely tanked. Yeah, blue control tanked down to 33% match win in June. Think about that. Wow. 33%. This past month in July, 51. So so, the, so it rebounds. <laughs> wow. 33% is an incredible tell match me, win percentage. So, it is difficult to achieve that. Tell me what tell me a little bit more about these decks. So in your in this classification scheme what what does the blue control deck look like i mean i know what the blue tinker deck is i played that quite a bit i know what the doomsday deck looks like yeah. and the bizarre decks look like but what what differentiates the blue control deck from blue tinker and what what's going on in oath right now too <laughs> okay well let me try to take those one at a time the numbers that is the quant- pure quantities on blue control decks are low so our sample size is not great but the the blue control decks these days are tend to be pretty evenly distributed between Jeskai and Rug. Okay, and so, so there's Xerox decks or Xerox adjacent decks. That's right. And the Jeskai decks are frequently Luris decks. They frequently have some combination of the, the Hall of Famers in uh, Lavinia, Ragavan, Dreadhorde Arcanist, etc. 
And the rug decks, uh, they're Renin 6 decks, of course, and they, they have some small amount of Tarmogoyfs, generally speaking. But yes, your observation is correct. I mean, that, the, these are rug, preordained decks. Rug to me does not, I mean, Tarmogoyf does not sound like blue control to me. That sounds like aggro <laughs> control, but okay. I'm willing well, to grant that that's... I mean, this is also you know, a deck with Renin 6 and Oko, so... You know, as as on the control spectrum and so vintage, that's the it's bug still pretty. Deck, but it's not DRS bug. So no, it's not. DRS is a separate category in this in this nomenclature. Okay. Yeah. And then the oath. But decks, really, what but is the that? thing is, I, I would argue that preordain to your prior observations, preordain is I think an identifying feature to this taxonomy for blue control because the death right decks don't have that. So these aren't really these aren't really control decks in the traditional sense. These aren't decks that like grind the game down to a halt. They're well, they don't still. have to be that extreme, but they're not. <laughs> no, these are not, not decks that these are decks that have an aggressive element built into them, and they that's right. They deploy that aggressive element quickly, and they defend it. They don't aren't just utterly passive in sort of like maintaining and developing control <laughs> and card advantage. That's not what these decks are doing. That's right, and I would argue that if if it was that's, up to you, this would probably be called a Xerox category. Yes, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about Oath? I mean, Oath has had so many transformations and permutations and iterations in the last few years. I remember, you know, we had the Oko Oath bloom and then that receded and then we had, you know, a new kind of oath emerge. Where are we with with oath? There are a couple of different flavors and um I I don't have comp- comprehensive information, but the most recent example that we've got from, well, this is from the early August challenge from Canister who who uh, took fourth in the challenge. This is uh Niv-Mizzet and Gristlebrand. Yep. That's not the only uh, package old, these old days. Favorites. But, but yeah, but it's a common one. But it still has a very controlling bent with Renin 6 and Oko, 3x Okos, and then a high, high counter count, four main deck Pyroblasts, still wow. one Veil of Summer, as well as some Fluster Storms. So if you remember an Oath list from three years ago that was primarily an Oko deck, this yes. is still that same lineage. These now, decks, there are though, variants have... of this that have the, um, that have the uh, what's the black Archon? There, there are Archon Oath lists yes. out there, too. And they're just not doing quite as well. But you can, if you're going to play against Oath, you should be aware of the notion that you might be facing an Archon. Well, Canister's deck also has Renin 6. Mm-hmm, that's right. So it's Which heavy. Is, it's kind of new. Yeah, I haven't seen that in Oath, but it be as Bozeju. Yeah. So, and Bozeju, as you and I discussed when we reviewed Bozeju, right? It's a niche player. And in Oath, obviously, it fights the very few things that people tend to have specifically for Oath anymore. And it's one of the benefits of being a. Uh, an underrepresented player in the metagame these days is that you're going to end up facing very few hate pieces. You're probably just going to catch a, uh, a an errant Grafdigger's cage here and there. Well, but otherwise, decks are mostly unprepared for you. Do you consider Force of Vigor to be hate or not? Well, I do, but um, at the same time, it matches up poorly against Flusterstorm, as you well know. Yes. And uh, you know the, these Oath decks have the one of the highest counterspell concentrations in the format. Dredge decks, not or not, um, Bazaar decks notwithstanding. You know, we're looking at two flusters, a force of negation, mind break trap in the main, like force of will and four brain, four pyros. Yeah. Now the pyros don't speak to to force uh, force of vigor, but still, the point is, this is a deck that can pick its spot. Very controlled. The, yeah. the, it's funny the presence of <laughs> the presence of Bizeju and the orchards and the wastelands makes it look more and more like the deck and Brian Kelly's versions of both. <laughs> right? I mean, really, yes. Yeah. Loaded up on. It's got disenchants. It's got rainbow lands. It's got lots of control permission and removal, bolt, yeah. etc. And has misstep I, as counter magic. I've always loved how low to the ground these modern oath decks have been for for years now. 
Like, aside from Oko, this deck can live on two mana indefinitely, and it's really impressive. Now, Ren makes that not a necessity anymore because you can reliably hit your land drops vis-a-vis Ren, but um, still, the, matter, the fact of the matter is the mana curve on this deck is incredibly, incredibly low. So, at any rate, the Oath decks and these blue control decks are, match win percentage-wise, uh, doing the best right now. But that can't last. No. Their, rep- their overall representation is still below bazaars and combo. And so wow. we're going to see a continued jockeying for a position. And the interesting thing is going to be, in my opinion, is um, can bazaar and combo stay on top? Almost certainly no. Because well, when, when Tinker's not there to prey on these, these uh, more fair decks, it's easier to load up against bazaar decks. Well, I've always felt that Oath is also unstable. As in, a, in a pull position in the metagame. Oh, it yeah. just never seems like Oath is able to maintain a pull position for a, for a, a like three or four consecutive months. Yeah, it never has been. It never has been. So the I like, I've got this great, I'll try to tweet this out when our episode comes out. I've got this great um, bubble chart of match win percentage by archetype. And it really shows- Did you shows create this or did they create that? Well, I created it with their data. Okay. Um, they it really shows a beautiful expansion and contraction. It's like the metagame, it's like the match win percentage across archetypes has a, a breath to it. It's like the metagame is breathing in and out. Some things rise to the top and then other things catch up, which forms a contraction, and then something else rises to the top temporarily. It's uh I think it's awesome. This is a thing that I have I I'm pretty sure that I've said it a number of times on the show, but it's never really been the topic of conversation per se in any given moment. But there is a beauty to um, um, any kind of magic metagame that is not driven primarily by new printings. That just has right? a sort of like internal dynamic to it. It's, in other words, it's an endogenous metagame dynamic rather than driven by external forces, right? Like, yeah. The purest yeah. representation of that clearly is old school, right? Like people love yeah. old school and the they continue to be... All, in, all endogenous. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And people are going through that, that in middle school for the last few years. There's been a big uptick in that. And for the same, a similar reason, right? You know, obviously there's nostalgia. There's a lot of factors at play, but they demonstrate that thing in the purest form. Well, I think that the last year or so of vintage since Modern Horizons really has been demonstrating that as well implicitly. There has been a purposeful depowering of sets, at least the, the standard yeah. legal sets, on the part of wizards. And that has manifest here as there's just no, no earth-shaking new. thing. Yeah. yeah. What's the last big vintage card? Or, well, let's well, just would, do what cards... It would be what, Saga. Me, yeah, but that was from last year, right? I know, what, that's my point, though. There's there's no playables from this year in the sets? Uh, playables, I would argue, yes. Okay. But nothing that's pushing the needle on archetypes. Did, did you know, these decks come are, out this year or last year? I can't remember. Baseju was this year. So okay. Baseju is probably the, best, the peak example of what you're asking. Okay. Yeah. But really, these are still Urza Saga Ragavan decks, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are it's the so much- Scylla and Carabdis of the format. It's sort of like <laughs> those came out last fall and they've kind of just, they kind of grabbed the metagame by the lapel and just shook it up. And then everything right. had to navigate around that. Yeah. That's right. And you're right to call out uh, Boseju, but Boseju makes slight adjustments, right? It gives you slightly different metagame angles, not the kind of new archetype and, and, wholesale pushes that cards like saga do so so kevin if you were considering a deck to play in an upcoming tournament what sort of factors would you consider i mean i suppose most of the tournaments still are online Mm -hmm. doomsday seems to have a huge advantage online still because you can (laughs) 
It's not that the doomsday piles are so difficult these days, but just the ability to to sort of like use the the magic clock, the chess clock, to yeah. navigate tricky points is a huge advantage that you don't get in paper. Not to mention just the, I mean, just the enormous amount of shuffling involved. You know, like searching and shuffling <laughs> is just mechanically yeah. difficult in paper. Yeah. <laughs> If people are considering it in paper, you should become very experienced if you're going to play Doomsday. Um, I agree with you. I I do think Doomsday is an excellent choice. I think it has been underrepresented in the vintage metagame possibly for decades, honestly. Like, <laughs> seriously, it may have been a Dark Horse best deck in vintage for a long time. That said, it's it's still not easy to pick up. Even though it's become easier, I would argue, still not easy. I would say, though, that... If you want to, if so, it depends on the type of player you are, of course, how committed you are. If you want to just have some fun, or if you want to really commit to something, if you've got the the bandwidth and or the experience to to learn Doomsday, then I say you you should probably be rewarded for doing so. It's still a top performer and notably difficult to metagame against, right? Doomsday has been a, a well known factor and played consistently by some of the top players for the last years, and still continues to put up these numbers. However, if you want a deck that is perhaps a little easier to digest and just has some powerful hands that are easier to assess, I would say, then I would look at Hogak. I really would. And I'm not just saying that because it's doing great numbers lately. Uh, it has been a consistent performer and representative throughout the year across the metagame. You know, if it weren't for the dominance of Tinker, Hogak would have the best representation for the whole year and the best performance. So I think those two decks... You know, the vintage metagame is in a place, as I said, the um, match win percentages for all the major archetypes have consolidated. They've compressed down into the for the, the 48 to 52 range lately. And as such, it's anybody's, it's any given Sunday type situation. Got it. If there's a deck you're con- you're comfortable with, I say run with it. Note, well, note the difficult matchups and test those and just go. But if you want to come into something new, pick one of those top two decks, I think, and, and you'll be pleased. Um, I was going to point out that I think for players who haven't played Vintage in a while, the blue Tinker deck would be very attractive. You know, it, it reminds me of the kind of decks that people would show up just to like Gen Con once a year would pick up and enjoy, right? I mean, it does. Uh, yeah, you and I used to always shake our heads at that notion that you could count year over year on someone showing up with a deck that had Tezzeret in it or Jace the Mind Sculptor or Dark Confidant, you know, like there was always that kind of Grixis-y thing that was, that was omnipresent at a, at a 2 or 3% level. Yep. <laughs> we we always would predict it in our metagame predictions, and then it would be borne out in the data afterwards. Yep. Um, I agree with you on that. There's a lot of muscle memory built into the, the Saga Tinker. And deck. they're fun to play. I mean, you get to play yeah. with Yogmas Will and Time Vault and Tinker, which are some of the mm-hmm. three shiniest toys in the format. Totally um, agree. And you get to then also play with the new toys of Ragavan and Urza Saga. So you get the best of the old and the best of the new. I, <laughs> I find the blue Tinker deck to be very attractive and fun to play. But the metagame shows that it's, well, it's rebounding, but it fell off a cliff in, in Q3, Q2, yeah. I should say. So, I mean, it's essentially, you're, you're making a case for almost anything here. You're saying that, you know, the, the Xerox decks are doing on the, on the, on the come, they're doing well. The, um, the Hogak deck is well positioned. The Doomsday deck is an excellent performer, perennial dark horse and high mm-hmm. performer. Um, the uh, the shops decks and the oath decks are currently the top two performers if from a purely empirical perspective. But they've <laughs> so, had a bad year. 
So yeah, but the the the, lead, late, the most recent month of July is completely anomalous for those archetypes. They've had a bad year otherwise. But you can't tell whether it's, you know, is it a the beginning of a trajectory or is it an <laughs> anomaly? Right. That that is true. You cannot tell that. I don't believe it to be that, but you, uh, I can't prove it. My experience studying data like this for now decades is that you get some anomalies, but usually they're short trends, they're oscillations. Mm -hmm. So I would think that the August data, I haven't looked at the data so far, but I would think that the August data would show something similar for Oath and Shops in August, and then maybe there would be a recession come September or October. But I, I would not call it anomalies. I would say that you know, it's just it's just rare that you see oath in a twelve month period. I mean, I could go back and look at my data for last year. Actually, let me do that right now. Hold on. <laughs> I would also say that the, your observations about uh, muscle memory with respect to the big blue decks also apply to shops decks. There are many a mage out there who made a lot of hay in the last ten or fifteen years with shops, and rightly so. The modern shop deck will fit like a glove in someone who's used to doing that, even if your experience is from three to five years ago. Even. So Kevin, <laughs> Oath, just, just to put it in context, Oath last year, these are percentage of top eights. So they're a combination of metagame presence. Mm -hmm. Here's Oath's percentage of top eights for 2021 by month. <laughs> and I'll round it to the nearest round number. I, I remember talking about this from our show. 6%, 6%, 0%, 5%. 3%, So Oath had a lot of oscillations in 2021. Mm -hmm. Ending ending the year at 12.5, rounded up to 13% of, of top eights. And then in January of 2022, it was pretty low again, right? So I think it looks like it started this year at 7 or 8%. So... I mean, you could see that as a, I mean, it's just hard. It's weird because you, October of 2021, 7.5% to 1.1% to 12.5%. I mean, that's, <laughs> what do you call that? Extreme oscillation? I mean, it's it looks like surging, disappearing, surging, declining. You know, it's just, it's hard to create a pattern to that. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, you said it earlier. The Oath deck is, has not been a consistent performer for many years now. It hasn't. It has had spikes of success, but no sustained success. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in 2020, we saw similar oscillations. I mean, you have 7%, 3%, 10%, 12.5% across 2020. So mm -hmm. just hard to, hard to peg where, where Oath ever is in a given moment. But I will say, just looking at these Oath decks, they look resilient. They look resilient. Mm -hmm. I think that my guess is that a lot is hinging on those four pyroblasts, <laughs> I have to say. The blue being yeah. a big segment. And so if the metagame becomes more Doomsday, Hogak, and Shops, my guess is the Oath decks are going to be worse off. Totally agree. Now, I and I also want to point out, too, that there are a lot of factors that go into representation and success. Like I said earlier, our sample size is not the largest. Even though this community effort does result in several hundred deck lists, Yes. It's still not. It's still only several hundred deck lists, right? And any one archetype is only rec you know, represented a few times. Well, there it, the, isn't the in data a given month. I mean, we have confidence intervals, so we can't we say right. that this data is statistically significant. The samples are large enough for statistical significance. It's just not at the ninety-nine percent 
Mm-hmm. And as you look right? through, I mean, it, don't don't gloss over that. Do you agree with that? I, well, they have ninety five percent confidence intervals. Yes, and the numbers I've been citing have been, uh, you know, irrespective of confidence interval. But I was about it's just to say pure that pure empirical observation. Yes. When you look at some of the stats on the the community's documentation, in particular the matchup graphs, yes, that's where, where they you get show smaller samples. That's right. That's where I was I was highlighting earlier in one particular example yes. that stands out. That is the the Hogak the, versus Tinker matchup. The confidence <laughs> interval there is one of the you. narrowest. Yeah, uh, the, the that one's is, one of the narrowest. Well, narrowest Whereas, meaning that the sample is larger. Right, that's You're right. Saying it's more reliable. The sample is yes. large. The number is more reliable. It's one of the most Got reliable it. matchups we have data for, because it's so numerous this year. Yes. So but then you as get you're the looking opposite. at, you get some matchups where the confidence but, interval yeah. is huge. Like I'm looking at your chart. There's one for DPS. DPS. Where, yeah. The confidence <laughs> interval is is 35 percent above or below, <laughs> yeah. which makes that number basically meaningless. Yes. Um. Yeah. So I would agree with you. And if you're not familiar with what confidence interval means, we don't have the bandwidth to talk about it here and now. But suffice it to say. The, the lower the confidence interval, the better. The more accurate and the more reliable you can treat the, the matchup information. <clears throat> so I agree with you in that um, the, the message here is simply that it's still kind of at any given Sunday metagame. There are systemic factors at play month over month, and you would be rewarded for trying to study the, both the data, but also your own understanding of any given matchup or interaction. Because and, and for having and for picking a deck, I think that you would have fun with because, <laughs> well, true. I mean, what's interesting is because fun is subjective. Mm-hmm. Something that appeals to you in kind of an intuitive level that you think you would enjoy playing, you know, drawing a hand of, I think, also implies that it's something that you are going to be competent with. Because if think about it from the other perspective, if you look at a deck and you think this would be frustrating and unfun to play. It mm-hmm. probably means that it includes one of two things. It in- includes interactions you're unfamiliar with and or cards that you don't have muscle memory and or success with, right? Which mm. means that if you just ask uses a heuristic, what looks fun, you're going to get some portion of the way to answering, you know, what what you'll do well with. <laughs> um, totally agree. Kevin, I saw a top eight recently that had... Uh, I think it was a Rogue Hermit deck in third place in one of these top eight. <laughs> and it had two Char Belchers main deck and two Char Belchers, Belchers in the sideboard. And I thought it was funny to see that. And I think it might have been in a late July um, vintage challenge top eight. But do you see do you see more of these? I want to deconstruct the combo archetype. So Doomsday is the biggest player in the, in the, Dooms, in the combo archetype. But are there other players of note? Well, it's really Doomsday and Breach, honestly. Okay. The, um... the Breach is more of a control deck to me. <laughs> well, and there's another that's a it's funny you should say that there's another aspect to that too and that is some flavors of the modern tinker deck are also breach decks or have right? a breach or are they deep well, into breach. I have seen lists with four breaches in them. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um that's not common, but I have seen it. Yes. And so breach is I think I mean it's still obviously a player. It's just not, you know, Doomsday is between 50 and 70% of the combo performance lately. Breach is another fifteen to twenty percent, and there's very little else. There, you know, the other combo sub archetype includes things like oops all spells, and what's another one? It's so mostly oops all spells. The rogue hermit <laughs> is probably considered classified as oops all spells. It's going to be classified that way. Yeah, you're right. 
Uh, the other combos are very sparse. DPS. DPS is something that's going to fall under other combo, right? But that's very rare. And that's also why it's one of those matchups that has the widest confidence interval, which I was joking about earlier. Uh, so generally speaking, if you're a breach player, especially if you're a breach player from other formats, right? Like if you're a modern player who has experience with breach, take a look at the vintage breach lists and you might be enamored with them. I mean, they're a lot of fun. And the, the executing the combo is actually very similar. Okay. I would like to echo what you said too about having fun. I mean, I want to borrow something that I personally subscribe to as much as possible if in EDH and that I know a great many of the other community members do. And that is try to play a deck that you're going to have fun when you lose. If you can play something and have fun when you lose, you can't, you can't lose. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but right? Like there's no yeah. bad outcome at that point. If, yep. if you can lose with your deck and have fun, then go for it. And I agree with you that that is not the same deck for everyone. There's no two ways about it. Um, that what I lose with and what you lose with are not going to be the same thing. So I think that's a good takeaway from this thing. If you're the sort of person who wants to learn more about the vintage metagame, make sure to connect with the vintage discord if you can. Yes. At the very least, uh, take a look at Justin Gennari's work on Twitter because he links to his stuff in his bio and f other frequent updates on Twitter. And all you have to do is is grab a, a you know a link to the copy or sorry the document one time, and you can just follow it on it's Google. It's invaluable Sheets. data. I mean, yeah, it really we've is. We've never had this level of granularity. Um, Not for any protracted period. No. no. Yeah, we're we're living in in salad days for <laughs> vintage true. data. This is great. And I, I also want to reiterate too that the you know the, the vintage Discord community is, is active. I'm not an active member, but it is very active. And you can get deck specific advice and conversation twenty four hours a day out there. So if you just want to dabble even, you can rapidly come up to speed with info just by dipping into that community. Sounds good. So Steve, we're going to you know, our our shows these days have mostly been on the set review uh, standpoint <laughs> for the last year or more. And this one is one that's kind of a return to form for us because we haven't done a true metagame up update for a while. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Dominaria. Yes. If the pendulum so, of power in standard sets remains relatively low, then my guess is we will have, you know, one, maybe two role players to come out of that set. Let's but I, I won't be surprised if the pendulum doesn't isn't starting to swing in the other direction now. We get some more, more toys. Yeah. Let's talk about the sets for just a moment. I want to just be clear because it has become, I mean, I, I know <laughs> follow people on Twitter who say that the set, the frequency and and numerosity of of sets has been a turnoff for them. And so I just want to get a handle on this with you and maybe for our audience as well. Bring <laughs> so yeah. the sets, the anchor sets for this year, just to be really clear, the kind of traditional big... Um, Expansion sets are mm -hmm. in calendar twenty in calendar year twenty twenty two. They are Kamigawa Neon D Dynasty number one, mm -hmm. uh, Streets of New Capenna number two, mm -hmm. and then Dominaria United number three, and then That's number right. four. There will be a fourth one, which will be the Brothers War. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the four big sets of the year. So we still have two more big sets of the year, and We've been through Antiquities several times before, and it's always yielded good toys. <laughs> Antiquities, Mirrodin, and then the, the, the second Mirrodin block gave us, yielded lots of vintage playables. So, do you? Yeah. Well, I, 
The last Dominaria set was an incredibly well-designed set. I mean, it was very well-received. I loved it. It was good and limited and constructed. Added lots of fun stuff. It wasn't overpowered for vintage. But there's... It, it might be a pivot point. Because you have to believe that the Brothers War is going to be an artifact-themed set. Yes. In some ways. And whenever there's an artifact-themed set, it always... It almost always results in something that's tilted toward vintage due to the workshop pillar and just the general artifact synergies in our format. So I am, I'm not saying I'm predicting it exactly, but I won't be surprised if the Brothers War is kind of the, the pendulum swinging back the other way. I'm not saying they're going to make a kind of mistake like, say, Oko again, necessarily. <laughs> well, who, who says that was a mistake? Yeah, Companions well, were a mistake. <laughs> companions I mean, were at, Oko at, at, did like... Above I mean, the storm scale in terms of mistake. But it, Oko it, was just below the storm, you know, a 10 on the storm scale. But for vintage, Oko was, was good, but it was... Re, it, I mean, he, would you consider... You're totally it, right. What? No, for vintage, Oko is a fine design. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I totally agree with you. My point is, is it's, it's, a, it's, it's a pinnacle of, of poor R&D from a development standpoint, well, and arguably a design standpoint, but from at least a development standpoint, it's a pinnacle in terms of the effect on other other format, you know? Yes. Can I, I mean, like, we, it's well known that middling cards in Vintage, like, say, Deathrite Shaman or Renin Six, you know, Dreadhorde Arcanist, like, just good bread and butter cards in Vintage have to be banned in Legacy. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so I want to go back for just a second, back to talking about the sets, because I'm, I'm sure some of the folks listening to us aren't paying attention to every set release, and so mm-hmm. may, use, may find it helpful to just review the sets of the year again. So I mentioned the four major sets. Right, which are mm-hmm. again, <laughs> um, help me out, Kevin. What did I Kamigawa. Do? Kamigawa, Streets of New Capenna, Dominaria. What is it? United, and then mm-hmm. the new the Brothers War. But right. in between those sets, filigreed between them are a kind of plethora of confusing and uh, <laughs> I don't know secret layers, alchemies, and then sort of the standard sort of like Commander and Modern Horizons. Modern Horizons two that was last year. And uh, it was but, last year, but yep. but we did have commander. We've had this year. Yeah, we had yep. command. So let me just try and re- just be clear on what those are on the ones that at least produced vintage playables. So the big one was Commander Legends Battle, Battle for Baldur's Gate, right? Mm-hmm. That what? was com- AKA Commander Legends Two. Yes, that was the big additional set that had new vintage legal cards, right? Yeah, that's right. Anything else? Well, there were Commander decks that had new cards in them for both Kamigawa and Streets of New Capenna. In fact... But they were drawn from the main sets. They weren't... So the thing is, um, it's a matter of degree. There are new cards in every Commander product that are just released as Commander decks. There are still new cards every time. But they are designed for Commander and not in the way that they screwed up the first time. Well, not... Yeah, you mean with the like first Toxic time, Delusion? Back with and- Delusion, Flusterstorm, and True Name Nemesis. Yes. Yeah, they're not like that anymore. So they've learned a lot of lessons in terms of putting eternal powerhouses in these decks, and they try not to do that anymore. And I, I would argue they have succeeded. So it is fair to say that there are brand new cards in the in the modern release of every commander deck that associates with most sets, but they are not um, they're not disruptive to our format again like they used to be. Okay, we're not going to get another flusterstorm ever again in a commander product. At least that's their commitment. Okay, so I just want to be clear: what sets? have I not named that have new vintage legal cards that were released this calendar year? There has been a commander associated 
set of decks for each of the base sets so far, Kamigawa and Streets of New Capenna. Yes, but th- are and they... Then there- and then there was Battle for Baldur's Gate that you already called out. Okay, that's it. Okay. That's so it. So none of these mm-hmm. like secret layer series um and stuff like that have new um vintage playable cards. Wasn't there a set that so, has like dragons in it? <laughs> there there have been secret layers that introduce new cards. You are right to say that. And there very few of those that introduce net new brand new things. But if you look at say and, and also <laughs> Unfortunately, the release dates are a little bit hard to nail down because it's just an, a vague shipping window that starts yes. to happen. But the the latest one that I'm thinking of is the direct. Street the Street Fighter set, oh. which just started to enter circulation. That has that has net new cards in it that are technically vintage legal that you could play. They are turn. technically yeah, that's yeah. right. Following I, the model of the original um, Walking Dead set, yes, which unfortunately had playable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, debatable playables, but yes, the the Rick card definitely saw play in Legacy. And I think, gosh, I, was it? Did Matt Murray play with Glenn? I can't remember if that was still that was still him doing that or not. Anyway, the point is, you're basically right. Again, they have been fairly safe in designing those cards. Now they're almost okay. entirely geared toward EDH when they make those new cards, and they haven't again developed a fluster storm or anything so, like that. So, in a meaningful sense, there have been three new sets this year that have introduced vintage playable cards in the vintage card pool. Commander Legends, Streets of New Capenna, and Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. In terms of scope, you're right. Then there are a few smaller ones. Okay. And we've got two big ones yet to come minimum. All right. Well, looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to that. So our our next set review will be Dominaria. That's right. Which is released, I believe, September 9th. So you'll be hearing from us soon. Yeah. The previews are, I mean, we've already seen a couple of preview cards, but the formal previews start very soon. Till then. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, thank you for listening to episode 106 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find it. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Game! <laughs> <laughs>